0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Paul Bigger, who co-founded CircleCI and is currently working on the dark programming language. We get into dark, server infrastructure, and online programming communities among many other topics. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, NoRedInk. NoRedInk makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com/jobs. And now, Dark. Okay, I'm here with Paul Bigger. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This is cool.
0: Okay, so you've created the Dark programming language. For those who aren't familiar with it, uh, you want to just explain what it is?
1: Yeah, so, so the idea with Dark is that uh, making software is hard. Uh, in particular, making cloud backends is hard. And so like, what, what happens if we write down every single thing that's, that's wrong and bad about making software, and we try to invent a way of programming? The major areas that we're dead is like having to do cloud stuff, you know, infrastructure provisioning, even even stuff like serverless and IAM and you know all, all, all that stuff. It's just kind of hard setting up databases, queues, indexes, you know, all all, all that. So you know what what happens if that's like just easy? And the second thing is uh, DevOps, you know, those CI/CD pipelines and and you know security and can we create something that just like doesn't have that? And then thirdly is is like this. The, the developing experience is hard. And you know, one, one example there is like debugging sucks. <laughs> yeah. Is there a way to do that? And, and what we came up with is if we have everything integrated, then we, we should be able to do this. We do programming language, we do an editor, we do the cloud infrastructure. As a result, you have one example you have instant deploys. Um, there's you know, just every, every character is deployed. The language is designed to allow that to be safe. Whenever you make a request to Dark, that's automatically saved in traces. I guess we call that observability these days. Um, so there's like instant observability to everything, and also that that's in the editor. So like any request that you make, you can see the value on line seven of that request, and as you change your program, you can see like what it does. It's just sort of you know this attempt at programming is broken. Can we make it not broken for the the subset of of cloud backends?
0: So dark ships with an editor, and if I'm typing in the editor, I, I think what you mean by like every character is deployed, it's like I'm typing into my editor, my dark editor. So it's not like Visual Studio Code, it's like the, the one that ships with dark. And as I'm typing, it's live deploying. It's just like
1: darklang.com, you you know, it's in the browser.
0: Okay, cool. So as I'm typing into that editor, it's live deploying everything I type. Yeah.
1: Uh, every every character it's it's you know saved to our database and immediately immediately available. So if you make a request and you just type a character, you know, you will get that version of it.
0: Okay. So I'm sure you thought of this, but what if I don't want that to go out to production right away? Uh, because I made a mistake or, you know, I, I pasted my, you know, my secrets.
1: <laughs> There's a couple of different solutions depending on, on exactly why, why you want to do that. So, you know, s- say for example, you can kind of divide programming into I'm making a new thing and I'm editing the current thing. So... The the situation that you're talking about there is probably an I'm editing the current thing and I don't want to break it because you're building a new thing you, you don't care you know, Well, maybe you care about your secrets but <laughs> if
0: it's not like if nobody knows where it is right then like yeah it's, it doesn't really matter if it's yeah okay
1: you know I, I, I guess you like tangents in this show so I'm going to take a quick tangent on on secrets one of the interesting things in in programming language over like dealing with security is like this idea of taint analysis so you can do dynamic or static taint analysis and basically tell a secret can reach the exit point or not. And so that's one of the things I want to build. I want to make it so like secrets, just like you can define it so that the secrets cannot ever be sent to a customer, for example, or returned over HTTP. We, 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 don't, we have that for passwords. So a password will just never be rendered. Like a password type will never be rendered anywhere. It, it, there's, there's other problems with passwords. It, it, it's not widely used, but you know, the, the concept I think is good.
0: Okay, so passwords and rendering, I guess that's like, do you do that at the type system level? Like you have a special type for passwords called like secret or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Dark is really kind of a, it doesn't really have a compile time. Uh, It is a statically typed functional language, but basically everything is done in the interpreter and and the runtime at the moment. Oh, interesting. Even type checking. There's a, a suspiciously small amount of type checking at the moment. It turns out that like things get like, if you design your functions to like take, you know, lists of a certain type, even if there's no type checker, you kind of, you're forced to write programs into that paradigm regardless.
0: I see. So is that like a long-term goal that you want to have a type checker or is it all going to be runtime?
1: I would call that a, a short or a medium-term goal. It's been killing me that it hasn't been one.
0: Got it. Yeah, okay. So it's designed to be a type checked language. Type checker is work in progress. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. It, there, there's bits of it there, but um, once you have this like live environment where all of our customers' programs are, are running you really have to think carefully about changes you make to the language and how you're going to adapt customers' existing programs to them.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, migrations, right? (laughs) One of the things that you're working on solving. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) DB migrations, yeah.
0: Well, so I mean, not just database, right, but also like code.
1: Yes, yeah. So one of my next big projects is, so we're doing a big rewrite at the moment. The rewrite is like basically done. And my next big project is going to be code migrations. And I want to use that as a way to build out dark because for the most part, I haven't been writing anything in dark, you know, we, we designed for people to build web stuff in it and I'm building dark. So, you know, it's, it's not, so I, I'm going to build this, you know, this migration tool in dark. Um, and whenever, uh, you know, r- r- really kind of like yak shave with it. So like every time I, I run into something, I will extend the language to support that feature and and, and so on. The next one is just like renaming deprecated functions. In some cases, we've renamed functions without changing their functionality. So like, all right, let's 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 go through every program in the database and just like switch it to the new name. Nice, simple start.
0: That's cool. I got to say two, two things that jump out at me about this that I really appreciate. One is the focus. Like you're like, it, I, so actually, I shouldn't assume this. It, it sounds like you're not ever planning to self-host Dark. Is that right?
1: To allow people to self-host it? Oh, sorry. Self-host
0: in the sense of, like, the compiler for Dark is written in Dark.
1: I suspect that at some point, so much of Dark will be written in Dark that, like, it's indistinguishable from (laughs) self-hosting.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. Just, you know, the language itself, probably not going to, like, recompile. But the... You know, we can build almost everything else in the ecosystem in Dark itself, and there's no need for more than the language is like you know a 500 line interpreter.
0: Got it. Okay, so I, I did mean going that far. Like I know that's like a, pride, a, a point of pride in some languages, and this is a thing that people ask me about with Rock all the time: is like, are you planning to self-host, like rewrite the Rock compiler in Rock? And I always say no because I'm not designing Rock to be a language that's great for building compilers. That's just not a non-goal.
1: <laughs> I agree with that idea, but you may find that you're not writing very many programs in Rock because you work on Rock. And so you you might find that, like, rewriting the compiler in Rock just allows you to write Rock all the time.
0: (laughs) I guess that's actually probably a non-trivial percentage of the reason that a lot of language authors do that. (laughs) But in my case, I mean, I know, like, the Go compiler, for example, got rewritten in Go and it got slower, uh, which makes sense because it was in, like, C++ before. It matters more to me to keep the compiler as fast as possible than it does to, like, you know, have the the most pleasant code base I could possibly be working with. So I want to go back to that taint analysis you mentioned. <clears throat> so this is something that I'm also interested in, uh, this idea of like, how can you detect when a secret or some piece of data should not get to make its way through the program and and like get passed to this function, for example, because it's really critical that that, and it might, might be a secret, but it might also just be like private information of your users. And you want to make sure that it never gets sent to, you know, these third parties, or maybe it only is allowed to get sent to these you know, data storage functions. I have not looked into this at all in terms of research. Is that something that's like well-studied?
1: For the most part, people did taint analysis, and you know, I haven't really done static analysis research in 10 years, so I, I might be completely off here. But the taint analysis that I saw was mostly around inputs and validating that the inputs weren't tainted. So you want to do some SQL injection. You need to get a tainted input, and so you want to prove that there cannot be a tainted input to an SQL function.
0: Okay, so this is almost more like escape analysis, except like instead of escaping the function, you're trying to figure out if it reaches another function, or maybe this is just totally something
1: different. It's like escape analysis in the sense that, that it's a, you know, a data flow optimization. Okay, we're going to get nerdy on static analysis here. Uh, escape analysis is a subset of, uh, of alias analysis. And alias analysis is just a place, just a way to to say, you know, can these two names, you know, two memory locations, these two things that we can refer to, can can they point to the same thing? Do we know that they don't point to the same thing? Do we know that they are the same thing? or, Or is there a maybe in there? And so taint analysis is something that would use alias analysis to become more accurate. And a lot, a lot of sort of compiler optimizations are like that. They they rely on alias analysis to be able to tell you are these two names different things in order to then like propagate whatever data they have.
0: Interesting. I'm surprised that that would turn out to be. Hmm. I have to think about this some more. But uh, this is cool. I appreciate your giving me like some so, some direction to look in.
1: Yeah. No. Th- th- this this is four years of research. I'm trying to distill into like you know a twelve line summary.
0: Right. So, so you did four years of research on like specifically taint analysis, or like just
1: uh, no. So, so I did my PhD in in compilers and, and static analysis. Initially, I was working on trying to implement escape analysis for GCJ, and you know I didn't make significant progress, but also I was just like. You know, there wasn't there wasn't good research coming out of it. There was just no, nothing interesting being being made, and so I switched over to working on what was my side project at the time, which is a, it was a PHP compiler called PHC that I was working on with a, with a couple of guys in the lab. And so I, I you know, implemented static analysis, like just hardcore static analysis for for PHP, which, as I'm sure you know, is extremely dynamic. And it's like, how, how do we model that? Well, we just like throw more stuff into the alias analysis. It's like, oh, you can access a variable by like by putting a string into this function and getting the thing. It's like, well, that you know, that tells us that tells us that that the entire program is is, you know, you, you can't statically analyze the entire program because this, you know, you don't know what what variable is being accessed here. Well, we can model that.
0: You you can model that the entire program can't be analyzed.
1: <laughs> no, no, you, you you can model that there's an access here. Where Where something is li- and then you can maybe and we, we we didn't do like look up the strings by name, but you, you you can limit it to say, do we know the strings that are going in here? Can we propagate the strings into here if it's like a config setting, right? you know, do the analysis after you've you've deployed it. I'm doing air quotes, so you can't you can't see them because you're listening to a podcast, but like yeah maybe maybe the compiler can propagate these config settings. And so that you know what variable is being looked up or what object is being looked up, and now, oh, it's decidable again. You can you can see what the what the program is.
0: Very cool. So okay, so you did. A, I know that you worked on Circle CI. Did you you co-founded it? Do I remember that right?
1: Yeah. So I was I was the uh, I was the CEO for the first four years um, of Circle CI, and first year of that is like building and talking to customers, and then after that, it was mostly in a you know, CEO kind of role. Was that before or after the PhD? PhD was first. Okay, got it. Yeah, so it was PhD, compiler engineer at Mozilla, Circle CI.
0: Got it. Oh, I didn't know you were at Mozilla. What, what were you
1: working on there? I was on the Firefox JavaScript engine. Oh, wow. Okay, so you've worked
0: on Firefox JavaScript engine. You've you created the language Dark. You worked on a PHP static analysis tool, and you founded. Did, were you the founder of Circle CI or co-founder? There of us. Yeah. Cool. So that's that's like a and a PhD. That's a, a very unusual combination of <laughs> things yeah, yeah. to do with a programming I mean, you, career.
1: You could sort of look at it as as dark being the culmination of these things. Like Circle CI is a a you know DevOps and the cloud and the you know PhD is the, the programming language and you know it's it's all that that running the company is like understanding the problems that people have when they're actually like building things. I think they all sort of like point into into dark.
0: Very cool. So, okay, so let's talk about some of the, I don't know, uh, CEO slash programming language overlaps that you see, like when working on Dark, because you've got some existing customers who are using Dark, like you mentioned, like they're, you know, relying on it. What's that like? I mean, being both the, <laughs> the person running, because Dark, there's also a company, right?
1: Yes, yes. There, there, there's a company, there's funding, there's, um, yeah, all that.
0: So you're doing both at the same time, you're, you're having to... Be the CEO and, and talk to customers and understand their needs, and also be the programming language designer, which means you also have them as language users and understanding their needs. And so, how, yeah, how do the how do you square both of those?
1: <laughs> so the the technique I've been using to, to square them recently is just like does, just working in the open as much as possible. So there's a Slack channel. There's there's no you know private company Slack channel. There's only the the public Slack channel. I you know discuss whatever I'm doing in there. Um, and honestly, you know, not, not, not that many people are really paying attention, but, you know, there's, there's a couple of people in there. Occasionally they will, they will, you know, emoji react to it. I talk about on Twitter. Our GitHub is open and that's where we do our prioritization and tracking. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm, an idea that I was thinking about today was starting to get the feedback more open because we, we've got tons of feedback. And it's like, well, you know, if people posted these in a discussion forum on GitHub, you know, there's nothing secret in here. That would be much better, much more in the open. I guess really I'm just trying to combine those two things. Combine the ceo and the and the building.
0: So what about the business model? I mean, uh, obviously you have paying customers. Um, no. Oh, you don't have paying customers.
1: No, 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 no paying customers, just users, I suppose. We will have paying customers
0: sure okay so so yeah so i'm curious like how that works because like a lot of people talk about like hey i want to make a the traditional pitch that i hear for a programming language is like we're going to make this programming language it's going to be open source and then we're going to make money i guess usually off of infrastructure is, is the common answer or, or like consulting maybe
1: yeah The all, all, all the models before infrastructure didn't work
0: I'm trying to think of, if i know of any counter examples
1: like Red Hat, Red Hat and MySQL are, are I think the standard ones. But after that, yeah, you I don't know f- if that
0: counts as a language, though.
1: <laughs> right, right. But th- th- those were those were like consulting models.
0: Like, yeah, I don't know if you know the Unison folks, but they're um, I yeah, I mean their infrastructure is the plan yeah, there, yeah. as I understand it. Uh, I guess Closure did consulting. I don't know if that was the plan from day one or if that just worked oh, out.
1: They, they were a consulting shop. Was that true before they made closure though? So my understanding of that history is that Richicki was not in the consulting shop. He joined the consulting shop. Then the consulting shop pivoted into making datomic.
0: I do I did know about the datomic, yeah. Okay. Because I know, yeah, Rich Rich took like two years off or something of like no work, just working just building closure and like another side project. And yeah, so okay, interesting. I mean that seems to have worked out for them. So I guess maybe that's the one example of consulting I can think of. So it sounds like you're you're, you're definitely going for the infrastructure route.
1: <laughs> yeah. So don't want to get too startup nerdy on this, but you know, I, I really believe in the, in this kind of idea of like you have to like figure out what, what your mission is and what, what it is that you're building, and then you sort of like pull that forward to what you're doing. So the business model of of Dark is is very much attached to like what is Dark intended to be. And so Dark is the easiest way to make software. It's not today. Objectively, not. But it will be. So what does that mean from, from business model? Well, that means that the product has to be like this hosted thing. But also, the product has to be the hosted thing, but it has to be our hosted thing. Like There, there has to be like one, one version of Dark running somewhere and not many versions of Dark
0: right and also there has to not be aws decides hey you know what that's that's meeting with some success i bet we could also make money off of that and undercut you
1: (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's exactly right and also i mean if you if you look at a lot of the discussions that are going on in the open source ecosystem at the moment there's a lot of like you know how how do the open source people who build all the stuff that that companies are built on how do they get paid and you know there's a very simple answer for that with dark it's like yeah you 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 pay us. It's a business. It's, you know, the, <laughs> right. the business pays its employees. The the you know like I know open source is this like you know fancy new new sort of like communist way of doing things. But like the questions that, that are being asked are, are are often like very easily solved by there is a corporation and the corporation is paid and the money then goes to the workers.
0: So you mentioned like open source. I as I understand it, dark is not open source, correct?
1: Right, right. And th- this is all, all. these things are are, are sort of why. I don't think that we could build the products we were trying to build if everyone was running their own version of Dark. Or if they their their own instance of, of Dark or whatever. I think that just makes for a fundamentally different product. It also makes for like a significantly harder product to build. Right now we're using like five or six or ten or something different, you know, cloud services and SaaS products and, and that sort of thing to build it. And so like, oh th- those have to be open source now, or or you know, some version of them that you know so, so someone's going to have to make an open source version of LaunchDarkly so that we so that that thing can kind of feature flags or you know configurable out or something it's just you know sounds like a nightmare
0: got it okay so so you don't the the plan is that it'll stay closed source and proprietary
1: so it is source available you know it's it's up on github you can download it you know technically it is technically possible to download it and run it yourself, but you are not licensed to do that
0: I see okay so it's it's a licensing question, not a uh
1: And I I do fully expect that at some point someone will will make a competing version of Dark using the Dark source code in a in a place that does not respect IP because this happens anyway.
0: Yeah, I I heard about this with Zig. There was this guy who who did like a hostile fork of Zig and was basically not respecting the license and things like that. There was a whole blog post about it, not crediting the original authors, even, you know, things like that. but what ended up happening, uh, I don't know, depending on the circumstances, supposing this did happened to Dark 2, what they ended up doing was basically just like, just telling everybody about it very loudly. Like, here's what's going on. The person who did that ended up, I guess, not being able to successfully, you know, achieve their own goals in the in light of all that, you know, coming to light. I guess it depends on who the people are in question who end up doing something like that. But there's definitely a, a very strong cultural component to like if your customers are programmers and programmers know about these things you know maybe it's not to say that like you know some people wouldn't still purchase this you know competing service that's uh built unethically but
1: I mean, running Dark is a nightmare. I wouldn't recommend it to them. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, if they contributed back, I probably wouldn't even mind.
0: Well, I mean, like you said, right? I mean, the, the whole purpose behind creating the language in the first place is that doing all this infrastructure stuff is really, really hard.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we, we talked a bit about the migration path earlier. One of the reasons I want Dark to be one instance of Dark is because we have every program that's written in Dark available in our database. We can migrate it. We can change the language. We can do analysis to know how the language is being used and and what changes are safe and and that sort of thing.
0: Right. Yeah, that's really cool. I remember that uh, feature flags are a pretty big part of how you do migrations. I, I seem to recall some something a mantra. Maybe oversimplifying a little bit, but it's sort of like feature flags, like solving a ton of problems, not just the ones they're usually solving
1: every problem is solved by futureflex
0: yeah so I'm, I'm like what how did you uh, end up there
1: i spent a lot of time thinking about continuous delivery you know working on products that were continuously delivered and, and where you you know you, you want to release something but you want to release it to one user first and and that sort of thing i also did a podcast um, with like 50 episodes called to be continuous with the ceo of launch darkly edith Harbaugh. Is
0: there any relationship there by the way? Launch Darkly and Dark? Is this naming coincidence or
1: well, one time Edith like said like I can't believe you named your company Dark. That's that's like and I that was the first time it occurred to me that that the word dark was in both.
0: Oh really? Okay. So so it was completely independent. Like no it wasn't planned.
1: I mean, I was certainly aware of of Launch Darkly, but I was naming it after like dark mode. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, I was, I was looking for a name where people would read my essay if I emailed it to them. <laughs> when I came across Project Dark, I was like, oh yeah, people will read that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But yeah, feature flags, they replace environments. So you don't need like a staging environment or a development environment. You, you just, you, know, you make a feature flag to have your, your own little environment. That solves some of the problems of environments, not not all of them deployments, slow rollout. You asked earlier about we don't want to we don't want customers to be able to see this. Well, just create a feature flag that's false and then you can make it so that the feature flag only applies to you and then you can, you know, play with your real data. And uh, version control, right? Branches, yeah. Branches. So, I think we're probably going to call feature flags branches, but I I think that there actually isn't a distinction between the two. It's just like branches is in your version control and feature flags is I mean, it's sort of version control for production things that that you have fine level control on. So if you if you merge your code into production, and like th- those are the same concept, there, there's no other code than production. Then you might want to say these branches, you know, this branch. How many people will we show this branch to? And a lot of deployment systems have this. Like GitHub uh, has the idea that you. Uh, you deploy something into production before it gets merged into into the main branch. Uh-huh. So I mean, it, you know, they, they are creating a new environment for that branch, and there's, there's lots of companies that do this as well. So yeah, th- th- those are the same thing. It's now okay. Well, what if we want this version to be slow rolled out? I mean, that's a feature flag, right? But the version is a branch. They're the same thing basically.
0: I guess the reason I always have thought of those as different is that feature flags, like you have in terms of the code, like a superset of all the feature flags, like all the code necessary to have every combination of feature flags enabled or disabled has to be running on the actual server. But with a branch, I usually have like some set of code that is not a superset of like all the possible branches, if that makes sense.
1: So a thing that is different about Dark than this model is Dark is tons of different programs. So every HTTP handler is its own program, right? It is its own endpoint. You know, it's fetched from the database, it's edited independently, it has, you know, feature flags of of, of its own. So you don't really think about things in the same way as you think about a repo. The intent is that you think about it as your complete set of, like, microservices, If you think about okay, I'm going to build an application. It's going to have 20 microservices. They're going to be each individual Git repos with CI/CD pipelines. They're all going to merge into one, or maybe multiple different cloud providers, different features, settings, and all that sort of thing. It's like well, dark just like it trims all that down to like there's just one environment, one code base, but there's different entry points. You know, each each worker handler is is its own entry point, and it you know, while it talks to other entry points through the database or, 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 or whatever, it doesn't really, a lot of the, um, the ways that, that we think about programming, I think are shaped by we do this offline thing and then we get it into the Git repo and then we have tools in the Git repo to have sort of multi-user editing and then we have other tools in production to do multi-user editing, but, you know, condense them all down into one and a lot of the concepts just sort of like vanish.
0: I see. Okay. So when I'm editing a handler, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but it sounds like I can do it in one of two ways. One is I can say, okay, I want to directly edit the production version of this handler. And every time I type a character into that handler, that's getting deployed straight to production. I'm working with, uh, you know, it's, it's doing everything completely live. Or, which I might want to do if I'm like, there's like a, a, a fire, like there's some, some I, I made a mistake and I want to fix it.
1: <laughs> as, as well as like feature flags, the language is designed to have sort of like this atomic sort of units where where you can edit. So let's say you want to rename a function or you you want to change it from one function to another function. There's a period of time where you've, you know, backspaced over some characters and there isn't isn't a new function, but it won't actually like, it is built into the language. This concept is built into the language of like this partially completed autocomplete sort of thing. And it will continue to evaluate to the old thing until you've completed the function. And th- there's a bunch of things like that where, like you know you can atomically add things to lists. and if it if you haven't finished you know the entire computation of this list entry, it will just skip it. So that allows you to you know, kind of put a comma and start writing without having to feature flag the whole thing
0: I see. okay. okay. so that's if i'm if I'm editing like live editing, but I might also say, you know what? I want to make a new version of this and I want to sort of gradually roll it out. So then this is where the branching metaphor comes up. It's like, I'm not going to edit that exact handler. I'm going to make a new version of it that's behind the feature flag and edit that one. It starts off being an exact copy of the old one, but then, yeah, and then eventually I can, I guess, press some button and say, transition from this one to that one with a slow rollout, et cetera.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or control the knob yourself or set, you know, only people who are setting this sending this header get this access. So you can, you know, only show it to the new client. If you've got like a JavaScript client or something that, that's touching it, then you know, we'll only do it for versions of the clients that have this thing set or that use this version of the API or, or whatever. And anything after that, it will notify you, could hypothetically in the future notify you no one has made a request to this side of the feature flag in twenty four hours. You know, your deployment is complete.
0: Got it. So okay. This this is a very cool pitch. The second thing that i appreciate i know i said there were two things a long time ago one was the focus the other is the ambition because <laughs> these are really really hard problems and i'm very impressed that you're taking on like so much scope because there's there's so much room for improvement there which reminds me that i i'm going to make a prediction that the hacker news comments about dark are not all are commonly of the form well isn't this just and then they list like you know, twelve, twelve technologies, and forgot another thirty that are like necessary to do all this. Instead of just having one thing that just does it all conveniently.
1: <laughs> yeah, the hacker news hate it, it tends to be a little bit different. It, it tends to be like this isn't possible, or this is a bad idea. I'm, I'm curious about both of those. De- de- deploying in production—that—that seems like a bad idea.
0: Have they ever had a production fire?
1: <laughs> well, yeah. And then the the this is impossible is sort of like. Well, maybe maybe it's not so much this isn't possible, but the um I don't want this because, um so, and that's frequently you know, I want this, but but I want it for Python. I want this, but I want it for my own cloud. I want this, but I want to keep using vim. and you know very or, you know all reasonable things, but not not things that fit within within what dark is doing,
0: yeah, I understand where that's coming from. One thing I always try to keep in mind with like any new technology adoption is that there's a large subset of people who are not open to trying a new technology until it becomes the most popular thing, like the majority popular thing. Not saying that's, you know, I'm not trying to speak for whoever is, you know, commenting that on Hacker News, but there's certainly a lot of people for whom that's true. And then it's also the case that of those, a certain percentage like to tell you that, but maybe not in those terms.
1: I mean, I I think the problem with with Hacker News is just that everyone is on it. And so... Every opinion is represented there. Um, and, you know, whichever one is against you is the one who will speak up this this particular time.
0: Yeah, there, there's an interesting dynamic as someone like reading, you know, Hacker News comments on about things I've made or whatever. And it reminds me of something that the, the Rust team talked about in like, this is like a keynote from like 2018 or something. They're talking about the RFC process and it was kind of like said in a joking, but, but also not joking kind of way where it was like, when they make a new rfc like a new proposal for a change to the language everybody's just praying that the first comment is positive because whatever the first comment's tone is like the first person's reaction everybody else reads that one and it's just apparently there's like an extremely strong correlation between like the tone of
1: the first comment and the tone of the subsequent comments regardless of the merit of the proposal i mean th- this is why companies have corporate comms you know if the ceo is is making a message to the employees they need to know in advance how it's going to be perceived they might even set up you know the first person's response i mean you could you could do that on hacker news maybe i will i don't know um but like you you could certainly have you know your friend comment on the rfc being like you know i'm i'm i was one of the first users of this thing i'm very excited i'm sure people do that
0: you're right. That probably does happen. But B, I also imagine that like, if people found out you were doing that, there would be a big backlash, even though like, even if you were to explain, like, hey, there's this really bad incentive structure here, where it's just like,
1: <laughs> literally, everybody does this all the time. Like, it's, it's what it's what PR is about. It's, it's why you get like, you know, movie stars on the the Tonight Show or whatever it is talking about their thing.
0: I guess I I just haven't thought about it in terms of like, I don't know, public discussion boards. But I I guess I mean that's that's the new tonight show equivalent, I guess, in terms of like people's reactions. Wow.
1: I mean, with, with the exception of Hacker News, I think that the vast majority of like tech conversation is going into like private groups. I think that we all see it being like very fragmented anyway. Interesting. I
0: mean, I definitely think that like my a lot of my fondest memories of conversations happen in person in conferences uh just you know in the hallway after this podcast at, right after right exactly yeah <laughs> uh but like you know uh yeah I I don't see conversations like this happening on hacker news I guess.
1: Of course not no no it's it's there's no there's no trust. There's no I mean it, it's a toxic hellhole. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird dynamic because on the one hand like a lot of people will say exactly the same thing about Hacker News. Like it's it's just a disaster. Like nobody should go there, but we all go there anyway.
1: <laughs> but there's nowhere else, right? You know, right. It's sort of, it's, it's...
0: There's Reddit. What's what's wrong with Reddit? Reddit is a is much less of a.
1: <laughs> I mean, Reddit is is a great example of like how you can do communities better because there's there's not one programming community. Right, there there is, you know, there is the programming one, it's it's the biggest, but there's there's hundreds of programming communities. And they all, you know, very often your your topic overlaps like ten of them, and two of them won't bother to discuss it because they're not interested, or you know, two of them are are dead and you know, one of them loves it, one of them hates it, you know, one of them has an ethos where you're not allowed to talk about it in that in those terms.
0: So comparing hacker news and Reddit and like uh, a language specific Discord. I've observed a pretty significant difference in terms of like tone and like sort of character of comments. So I think, I think you're right that like hacker news, because it's just like everybody, I mean, it's just all over the place. Like everybody just, you know, shouts their opinions at each other.
1: Well, there's further their thoughts on that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, we can come back to that. Um, but I, I think I have observed less of that on language specific subreddits, but I still definitely see like somebody will post something on a language specific subreddit and I'm just like, wow, that's just like, why would you say that? And then I look at their posting history and it's all over the place. It's not like they just hang out in this one forum. It's like, oh, they post on our programming languages and you know, some other less reputable subreddits than that. Um, and then and then they, they just stopped by this one to just like say this thing. And then on language specific discords it's way less of that it's like wait cut and i think the reason is that you just have to go make an account like you have to go out of your way to go sign up there's just like a little bit of extra friction it's not the moderation because like you have mods on subreddits it's like they're both equally moderated by somebody who you know is like in some authority position in the language and i think it's just that friction
1: just human communities are are sort of eccentric and fascinating like every community has its own vibe but also every person has their own interaction with with that community and their own persona within it so like you'll see people who act differently on their different alts right they've got they've got 10 different you know reddit accounts one of them is to be a dick with one of them is their like earnest i'm learning rust thing but also you know if you take the same persona and you put them into into different communities they will they will adapt to how the community discussion happens, even if it's not through moderation, you know, even if it's just through, there's a whole lot of nice people saying nice things about it. They might say, oh, you know, I've got something to say nice, something nice about.
0: I mean, I'd I like to believe that, but I actually, I don't know. I have seen on like subreddits, I guess in particular, people saying, you know, like, like, Everything's like nice and nice and nice you know in terms of like the the topics and like people's conversations about them if there's disagreements they they're calm disagreements, and then somebody just shows up as just a total outlier. I very rarely comparatively see that on discord and in person way less than anything anything online
1: well in in person people just get you know they get shunned straight away, yeah yeah
0: I mean it, i I have not personally seen this happen at a conference like where somebody shows up and is just like, you know, just just being an outlier in terms of negativity or just, you know, hating on people. I think we can all picture like what would happen if somebody did that. Everybody in the group would just be like, what are you doing? Get out of here.
1: Yeah, yeah. and and you you would avoid them. Yeah. Like if you saw them at another conference, you, you know, you'd look away, but in a, right. in a Discord or a Reddit, you can't look away. They're, you know, they, they have access to your attention.
0: Right. That's a good point. Yeah, you, you can't really like move into a different room. It's like everybody's all in the same room and, and you know the only alternative is to ban people, but that has its own can of worms about, you know, people getting meta upset about, you know, whether or not your bans were justified.
1: I recently added a not exactly a terms and conditions, but a sort of meta terms and conditions, a directional terms and conditions in the dark docs and it basically said like, you know, I might ban you. Just like if <laughs> if, if I don't like what you're doing or acting or whatever just don't have to have a reason might do it
0: no reason okay yeah so so just just uh, <laughs> full-blown like i have complete control over the banhammer and that's just how I mean, it is it's,
1: it's difficult having like the the overlap between community and products that you might use for your work is going to be a difficult one to navigate you can't just like banhammer someone and also banhammer their website Unless it's like, you know, they're making disinformation bots or, you know, something equally bad like crypto. Uh, oh. like that one that I, like. Yeah.
0: I am actually going to ban crypto. Ban? Just so like, what is you that? Can't How do you can't use ban Dark crypto? to build crypto
1: things. And I, I, might, and I, might, uh, I might throw a couple of, um, you know, firewall rules to, to certain APIs, that sort of thing. I haven't, I haven't really thought about it exactly, but I don't, I don't want there to be a significant overlap between like Dark and crypto. So why is that? Because uh, crypto is a scam. Lots of reasons <laughs> why I think this. In ma- many like multifaceted reasons, but like summary.
0: Okay, so it's it's purely a, a personal moral thing. It's not like a, there's no technical like reason why it would it would have like bad patterns or anything.
1: I mean, th- th- there was a you know, every every CI company deals with uh, crypto miners, for example. Oh, sure. Dark isn't a really good way to do crypto mining because you'd have to write the thing in Dark, and it's an interpreter. Like you might get you know, one thing. Also, I'll notice immediately that, that my entire cluster has, you know, spun up 10 times and it's all, you know, doing this one thing. But yeah, I, I'm not I'm not too worried about that.
0: Has anyone tried to do that yet? On like, Dark? Yeah. No. Crypto mining? Yeah, because they'd have to write the algorithms in Dark. That makes oh, sense. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think it'd be very hard. Got it. I also think we, I, I don't know that much about crypto, but I imagine that they're not just using a HTTP protocol, which is all you can use in Dark at the moment.
0: Yeah, I I also don't know. changing topics briefly um so uh, i remember reading a blog post about you deciding to rewrite dark in f sharp and i'm sure that people have asked you this before but the most popular if if people say i'm going to rewrite it in x x is these days usually rust that's like the most common thing to rewrite a thing in Obviously, you considered that, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, like what, what your thought process was, like what are the the pros and cons? Why F Sharp?
1: You know, it's funny. I was just on a podcast the other day. I was on a Rustation Station, which probably won't be published by the time we do this. But you know, talking about this this exact thing, it's like they're, they're Rust. It's like why didn't what uh, I was going to make that ten much worse than it actually was. It's like we are we are curious. You know, everyone wants to rewrite in Rust. So what you know, what, what can the Rust community learn from this? So the conclusion, I'll take you right to the end is that it wasn't a good fit for how I want to write stuff in the future. And by that, I mean that a high-performance language is useful, but a high-level language is very important at the moment. And so F-sharp is a high-performance, high-level language, and Rust is a high-performance, low-level language. And in particular... Rust is a language which doesn't have immutability or garbage collection, and it suffers from that to a certain extent. So, a lot of Rust people will say that that it has like compile time garbage collection, which is which is true in in a certain sense, but it doesn't have a mark and sweep garbage collector, and so it has to have some things to deal with that. And I don't remember the exact thing, but for example, if you're building an async multi threaded thing. Then the ownership gets very complicated when something wants to move from one thread to another, and there's something involving pinning. and I got lost while you know while trying to implement this this sort of thing, and it gets worse with recursion, I think. But it's just like you know trying to build it, and I spent I don't know, about two weeks trying to you know rebuild kind of the core interpreter thing, and I just kind of came to the conclusion like this: this isn't a good fit for how I write programs.
0: Yeah, I, I get that. Briefly, you mentioned like Rust not having immutability. By that, do you mean like in terms of like uh, cheap cloning of like persistent data structures or?
1: So it, it has it, but it isn't what it is. Ah, uh, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So R- Rust is an immutable language with a functional veneer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the,
0: the creator, uh, Graydon horror, I think he called it, what was it? Uh, linear ML in C++ clothing. That was the,
1: <laughs> <laughs> surely the other way around.
0: Uh, linear C++ and ML clothing?
1: Uh, I suppose m- m- maybe like syntactically it's, it went a little C++. It, it does, right, linear ML is, is probably imperative. I, I don't know it.
0: Oh, he, well, just like, so ML as in like, you know, standard ML like that. You know, the, right, right,
1: right. But I think standard ML was like imperative.
0: Yeah, so he yeah. means like linear as in like we added linear types to it, you know. Oh, I see. I don't know of a language called linear ML. Maybe there is one and I'm just uh, unaware of it, but I <laughs> I thought that was the part of the joke. Could be wrong.
1: Yeah, like F-sharp is... I mean, I've been writing in functional programming languages for like 11 years, almost exclusively now. So CircleCI was built in Clojure, the first version of Dark. There was a little bit of Python there, but it didn't take very long. But that was OCaml on the back end, Elm on the front end. It's Rescript on the front end now, F-sharp on the back end, and Dark itself, functional programming language. So... I didn't want to have to write a functional programming language, which is what I would have to do in Rust, right? I would have to, you know, get all the immutability stuff, get the, you know, garbage collector perhaps, whereas in F-sharp, it was free because that's what the language is.
0: Yeah. I had a lot of growing pains, like getting into Rust. And I, I I, don't recommend using Rust in a functional style. I don't think it's like...
1: I, I agree with that. I, I think it's not a good fit. Just right?
0: em- embrace the imperative. That's like what, yeah. where Rust shines. But yeah, I mean, it definitely takes a lot longer and is a lot harder to do various things. One of which is, yeah, like a, a lot of concurrency stuff. It'll prevent data races, but it's not going to do it in a way that makes you able to write code really fast.
1: Right, right, right. Whereas in F-sharp, you get to prevent data races by just everything's immutable. It's automatic memory management. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Dark is like the, the implementation of Dark is extremely, you know, we rely on immutability all over the place. We very rarely do mutable stuff. If we do, it's on locally scoped things. And there's no like global immutability anywhere, except maybe initialization.
0: Got it. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, so what have you thought of s Like now that you use it for a bit,
1: love it. Think it's phenomenal. It's a great language. It's got great tooling, and I'm not sure I would have loved it as much a couple of years ago. Like it's it's built in .NET, and .NET has made amazing strides in the last couple of years since they so they they created this thing like five or six years ago called .NET Core, which was like a redo of it, and they made it like super high performance. Really designed for high performance, and then the the APIs and stuff in it are you know like you, you have a high class HTTP client or a GRPC client or or whatever, just like very you know performance, well written, well documented. So like the .NET platform is phenomenal, and writing F Sharp is phenomenal, and the two go together exceptionally well.
0: Wow, I did I did not know about .NET Core. That's that's a very cool initiative.
1: Yeah, so they they call it .NET number now. So it's .NET 6 was the latest one. They're working on .NET 7. And that's like the merge of every line of .NET that they, that they ever had. But they, it is also, it is really like the future of every one and they deprecated all the others.
0: So have you considered, um, I know there's a, what is it, Fable that compiles F-sharp to JavaScript? Have you looked into that? Uh,
1: it's 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 too much at this point to, to rewrite the front end as well. Okay, <laughs> fair yeah. enough. I already rewrote the front end from Elm to, re, to Rescript and you know just I, I don't have the the brain to um to rewrite it again but especially because when when we switched to rescript i kind of thought that there would be this like this merging of the code bases that we'd have the back end written in ocaml the front end written in in what at the time was called reason ml and that we'd be able to share types and code and we just we just never did because there was they have like different life cycles different, you, you use different types on the front end and the back end even if uh, even if they're like conceptually the same type.
0: Yeah, so I found that I mean, it's useful in the very specific case of sending data across the wire like having a you know one schema for like, you know, here's the JSON or whatever, you know, bytes
1: structure is, is going to go across. Yeah, I, I actually don't agree with that one. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I suppose it depends how you use it. So like, it, it's, it's useful to have you know, to know that these types are exactly the same. But I have found that I make types for APIs that are separate than the types in the runtime. And I will... So I, I have, like, multiple types for every concept. There's the one that gets serialized to the database, that's the one that's used in the runtime engine, There's the one that's used to talk to the API. Because you have to version the APIs, right? You, you, you have clients, clients survive weeks, out there your data your back changes immediately so like you can't just use the same type on the back end and the front end but you can say all right this is api v1 type this is api v2 type this is api v3 type and you can have like the communication between them but it doesn't save you as much as it would if you could conceptually just use the same types on the front end and the back end
0: i see i think candidly a lot of people just don't bother making their clients and servers backwards compatible across deployments and so just Clients, if they're old, they break. And then that's just how it is. But, I mean, kudos to you for actually <laughs> thinking about that.
1: I mean, if you're building a programming language for continuous delivery, then these ideas are just like you spend a lot of time on on this sort of idea. That makes sense. Cool. Is there anything else we should talk about that we haven't covered already? I mean, I, I feel like we're nerd out about language things uh, for for hours. Yeah, probably. probably. I'll have to do yeah. another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, actually, I did. I did want to ask uh, a little bit about rock. Um, I I, d- I don't know if your viewers uh, d- do they get exposed to this every week? Uh, I would say often, but but not every time. Well, I'm I'm curious. Are, are you working on it full time? Like, is this your full time gig, or is this a side
0: project? It is now. Uh, it has been for about a month.
1: Full time. Okay. And is, is it going to be like financially sustaining at some point?
0: I don't have a plan for it to be self-funding um, in the sense of like when I created it, my plan was just to always have it be an all-volunteer thing and to, to have unlimited runway by virtue of the fact that nobody was, you know, working on it full-time. But... Subsequently, it's turned out that there is more than one company that is so interested in using it that they want to fund it to, just to have it like arrive sooner so now there's me and, and one other person I'm working on it at no Red ink, and uh, there's somebody else working on it at a different company. Uh, they haven't done an announcement post yet, so I don't want to like steal their thunder, but we've both been working on it for a month full time oh
1: so, so so no red ink is is paying you to work on it? yes oh oh, I thought I thought you had sort of quit and were working off savings or something no, no, no it's always interesting to to see. You know, people who who go work on these on these passion projects, and you know they have families, and they have to explain to their families why they're working at fifty percent salary or no salary, or, or why their savings should be spent on on all of this.
0: Well, Andrew Kelly, the guy who made Zig, he started out soliciting donations, like when he was working on it in uh, part time, and then he got enough sort of consistent donation flow that at some point he realized that he could actually you know make ends meet by leave, quitting his day job and just working on it full time and he's been able to make that work it's a it's a pretty uh, impressive achievement and actually not not only him but he, there's they get so many donations that there's actually multiple people now oh, wow. uh, on, the, on the zig payroll uh, i think it's like four people all getting paid to work on zig just from donations to the zig software foundation
1: I, i've been thinking about like do 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 i want to take donations for dark is, is that like a good idea
0: I don't know. I mean, if you have a business model, like it seems like that's um, probably a more reliable way to have funding, in the sense that you know, donations like people can change their mind at any time. But you know, if somebody's like built their business on the thing and you know they're happy with it, like they're they're probably going to continue being a paying customer as long as they're still happy with the product.
1: Well, my my sense is that it's not you know it's going to be maybe a couple of years, maybe many years before people have built something. Where there's like so much infrastructure that, that we make money from infrastructure costs. I see. And so I've been I've been playing around with you know what what if we what if we just had like a GitHub model you know you can, you can pay us seven dollars or ten dollars a month or, or something like that, but then you know you, you don't want to block adoption you don't want to you don't want people to have to so there has to be a free thing, and so then you know, may, maybe the, the maybe it's free and like you can also pay seven dollars and that's sort of a donation. But also, maybe if we're going to do that, we should just like lean into these existing ecosystems of GitHub sponsors or or Patreon or or whatever, where where people can you know already do this.
0: Honestly, like I I donate to a couple of different you know software things that I use and like. So I don't know what the how much you would get from doing that, but I mean it's probably pretty uh low friction, low cost to try it out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I always put big requirements on myself for these things, and you know I should just like. I should just put a link up and see if anyone wants to do Yeah,
0: <laughs> Might as well.
1: Yeah, hmm. Definitely something to think about.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, do we have anything else to talk about on these subjects? Or do you have any other questions about Rock?
1: <laughs> God, I, I could probably ask you questions about Rock for another hour. <laughs> yeah. Why did the companies who are excited about Rock, why are they excited about Rock? And what do they want to do with it?
0: In both cases, servers, but not in the sense of this is definitely not as ambitious as, as what you're doing with Dark. It's more in the sense of wanting a, I mean, like, let's say, like, at No Red obviously, we already have, like, a whole lot of deploy infrastructure and stuff that we've already set up and are very invested in. So we've been using Ruby on Rails for most of our backend, for most of the company's history. At some point, we decided, like, years ago, that we wanted to move away from that. We weren't happy with it. And we looked around for, like, what could we move to? And the thing that seemed the best was Haskell. That seemed like the, for us, that had the best trade-offs
1: your front end is written in elm right so people wanted a sort of some types type language
0: yeah something like so actually the way that we use haskell is uh the joke name for it is like elm flavored haskell like we basically try to pretend that haskell is elm and then use it like that but haskell is not elm in, in a number of ways and two of the ways that really uh matter for us is one the compile times are not nearly as fast and as the code base gets bigger and bigger that's a, a bigger and bigger deal um and a bigger drag on productivity and second the error messages are not nearly as helpful which is also a drag on productivity like if you're just sitting there staring at it especially because like we hire a lot of people who like you know are relatively new to programming that learning curve is significant
1: so the, the suggestions that, that i was thinking of, you want you want a backend there, there's a camel and you want uh, or there there's f sharp and F-sharp has terrible compile times. And OCaml has terrible error messages. <laughs> well, so the thing about Rock is we've
0: been built from day one to be really, really good at both of those. So, yeah, I mean, like we're, we're we have not yet gotten it down to the point where like a release build of the compiler can build and type check something in under 10 milliseconds but we yeah. had, it's like it's like 20 something milliseconds for like like 100 lines of code or something like that
1: oh for so 100 lines of code okay well, yeah that's, that's not a lot, <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
0: but i mean like you know the, the, it's cuz there just aren't any like really big rock code bases yet but definitely we've taken great pains to keep the compiler really fast and all the error messages are basically like ported from elms compiler like we, we took the type checker in elms compiler basically like ported it directly into into the rock compiler and then not- modified it i have
1: some thoughts on on speed here Okay. The I'm sure you've done this uh, or considered it, but the there's an entire like build ecosystem around Rock, or you know, like conceptually, right? There's there's packages. There's there's um, you know, it might it might be able to link to .dot so's or whatever whatever's involved. And also there's like the the watch mode and the there's the fact that we run the compiler lots of times. And I think that so many people build compilers as this like as this monolith that runs when they execute it and they they make it fast by measuring the time from running until completing and the incremental thing is far more important and you you get kind of incremental tools built on top so like in C for example you know each file can be built but i think what you want is to have the entire is to have like incremental compilation at every unit within the thing. You want incremental compilation on a function basis, on a file basis. So like someone changes a file, you should only be recompiling that file and nothing else.
0: We've definitely talked about stuff like this. So the Elm compiler does it at the file level. We have talked about doing it at the individual like top level declaration level, especially because if we treated them separately, we we don't currently do this. But it's interesting that if we did separate those, not only could we do them incrementally, potentially, but also uh, we could parallelize them.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And it would also significantly reduce the amount of things. Because if you do a whole file, then everything that depends on that file needs to be recompiled. But if you do just the one function, then it's only things that depend on that function, which is probably 10 times less. Hopefully, yeah. Right,
0: especially if uh, it depends on the function, but yeah. Right, if if the function like internal to the module, then it's like no big deal uh, at all. Yeah,
1: or, or if you're writing a new um, if you're writing a new function that nothing else uses, why are we recompiling anything?
0: Right, and and I mean, there's there's the classic case of like you have like a utils you know, file that that gets imported a million places, you're right, you you change one function in that. And maybe it's only used by like three other modules. But yeah, you have to rebuild your whole code base.
1: Or you write a new function in it. And now you need to recompile your whole code base.
0: Yeah, so definitely, this is something that's like very much on our radar, in part because of incremental batch builds, but also because like, we want to also ship an editor with rock, that's designed to be out the box, like a really nice experience. And that's, part of the reason we've been thinking about like individual top level declarations like if you're editing the editor like well we just we know that there's going to be just like which one you're editing right now so within the current file we don't want to have to rebuild the entire file every single time you make a change to just one definition
1: you can also save your intermediate representations and you know sort of sort of like reuse as, as much as possible so optimization is, is a place i've spent a lot of my time and one of the reasons optimization is slow is because people do, you know, the, this interprocedural optimization, or or they they throw away all the optimization and then. But like, if you change a function, you should still have the optimization results for its callers, for its callees. You know, you, you should be able to reuse that optimization work without rebuilding anything except the function itself.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Right now, we just lean on LLVM for all of our, well, almost all of our optimizations. But yeah, that definitely makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think I think everyone learns that at some point. The best optimization they can do is send less stuff to LLVM, and so then then everyone has to uh, has to do their, you know, they they start replicating the LLVM optimizations at a higher level. And I mean, uh,
0: our approach to that is just uh, we have multiple backends. LLVM is only one of them, so we actually we go straight to machine code. Some of these are incomplete. I guess they're all incomplete. one None of them are at feature parity with the LLVM backend yet. But we have like x86 on Linux and on uh, ARM Linux, and then also um, WebAssembly. It just goes, it doesn't even talk to LLVM <laughs> for, for development builds, of course, like, so they, you know. What,
1: what, what, why... Oh, because you need LLVM's compilation.
0: So for release builds, like optimized builds, we want LLVM optimizations. But for development builds, which are not going to run as fast, like you don't always run you know every build with maximum optimizations enabled. For development builds, we care about much more about turnaround time, like how fast. Or especially if you're like running tests or something. So for those, uh, we just do it with you know go straight to machine
1: code. Right, right. right. Dark has an interesting approach to, to this, which is that there's just an interpreter. So everything, you know, as soon as you save it, it is just loaded by the interpreter. But at some point we will want to compile it as well, but we never want you waiting for the compiler. So there will always be an interpreter. And then because there's no sort of like shared state, we don't need to make like this JIT hybrid. We can compile it in its own job, save all the intermediate stuff, whatever. And then like, you know, two seconds after you've made it, we'll, we will save into the database this compiled version of it, and probably probably we need to do multiple level things. So there'll be something that takes like you know 500 milliseconds to save in the database. There'll be the interpreter until then. So I, I think we, we we can have a sort of like a, a JIT compiler that does not need to like actually share process space with with the interpreter.
0: That would be very cool. I, I have not heard of a JIT that does that.
1: Well, because JITs, you know, people write programs that run on computers, not. That run on clouds true true good point good point yeah, yeah it, it, it very much changes compilation model changes so many things it's it's wonderful very cool very cool rock seems really cool i'm excited to see how, how that goes
0: yeah I, i'm also excited to see how dark goes so yeah best of luck with it we should get together and uh, talk about uh, some more in the future
1: yeah for sure for sure
0: all right well thanks so much for coming on the podcast really appreciate
1: it uh, thank you for having me catch you later